Hello. We're going to do something a little bit different for this episode of Kol Hechelutz. As far as I know, this will be a world exclusive for an English-speaking audience of a short story written by a fascinating revolutionary by the name of Ilya Ehrenberg. The reason why I think it's a world exclusive is that I translated the story myself. First about the author, Ilya Ehrenberg. The prolific Russian-Jewish writer was born in 1891 and went on to become a mouthpiece for the Soviet regime, both from Moscow and as a dispatcher abroad. He reported as a journalist from the First World War, the Second World War and the Spanish Civil War. He was actually the first to document eyewitness testimonies, letters, diaries, affidavits and other documents on the activities of the Nazis against Jews in the camps, ghettos and towns of Eastern Europe. The story you're about to hear is taken from his satirical book of short stories, Thirteen Pipes, which he wrote in 1923, a book in which he criticises capitalism and bourgeois morality, analysing the contradictions of bourgeois society. The setting of this particular story is Paris, at the end of the 19th century, the period of the Franco-Prussian War, the collapse of the Second French Empire and the beginning of the Third Republic, the incredible revolutionary government of 1871, known as the Paris Commune, plays centre stage in this tale of both poverty and opulence, cynicism, death and destruction. Here is Pipe 2 from Ilya Ehrenberg's Thirteen Pipes, read by Emily Bock. Thirteen Pipes by Ilya Ehrenberg. Pipe 2. There are many beautiful cities on this earth, none more beautiful than Paris, where carefree women sit in the cool shade of the palace boulevards, laughing beneath blooming chestnut trees, drinking bubbly, ruby-red beverages, whilst thousands of lights swarm as reflections in the marble of its spacious squares. The stonemason, Louis Roux, was born in Paris, and he remembered well the June days of 1848. He was seven years old then and very hungry. Like a raven, he silently opened his mouth and waited, waited in vain. His father, Jean Roux, didn't even have a slice of bread. He only had a gun, and the gun could not be eaten. Louis remembered the hot summer morning when his father was cleaning his rifle and his mother was crying, wiping her face on her apron. Louis ran after his father. He thought that his father, with a clean gun, would shoot the baker and take from him the biggest loaf of bread he had, a loaf even bigger than Louis himself. But his father met other people who also had guns, and they began to sing and shout together, Bread! Louis expected that in response to such wonderful songs, rolls, bagels and flat cakes would come showering down from the windows. But instead, there were many loud explosions, and bullets whistled by. One of the people shouting, Bread! suddenly shouted, It hurts! and fell. Then his father and the other people that he was with began to do some very strange things indeed. They upturned two benches, dragged a barrel, a broken table and even a big chicken coop from a neighbouring yard. They put all this in the middle of the street and then lay down on the ground behind these objects. Louis assumed that the adults were just playing hide and seek. Then they fired their rifles and the gunfire was returned in kind from the direction from that they had been shooting. And then more people arrived on the scene. They also had guns, but they smiled cheerfully, beautiful rosettes gleaming on their hats, and everyone called them guardsmen. These people took his father and led him along St. Martin's Boulevard. Louis thought that the merry guards would feed his father, and then he followed after them, even though it was getting late. 
On the boulevard, women laughed beneath chestnut trees and fetching dudes drank ruby-red liquors, whilst thousands of guardsmen marched on the shiny marble pavements. Near the gates of St Martin, one of the blithe women who was sitting in a coffee shop shouted to the guards, "'Why are you taking so much trouble and dragging him further? You can give him his just desserts right here on the spot.' Louis ran to the laughing woman and silently, like a raven, opened his mouth. Meanwhile, one of the guards took a gun and fired. His father screamed and fell, and the woman laughed. Louis ran to his father, clung to his legs, and began to wail. Then the woman said, "'Shoot the puppy too!' But one of the dudes who was drinking a ruby beverage at the next table called out, "'Leave him be. Someone needs to do the work in Paris.' And because someone needed to build the buildings of Paris, Louis Roux remained alive. Following a ghastly June, quiet July arrived. No one was singing and no one was shooting. Louis grew up and didn't betray the hopes that the good dudes of the most beautiful city in the world had placed on him. Father Jean Roux had been a bricklayer and Louis Roux became a bricklayer too. In wide velvet pants and blue shirt he built houses. He built in the summer and built in the winter. Beautiful Paris wanted to be even more beautiful and Louis was there where the new streets were laid, the wide boulevards of Haussmann and Malesherbe lined with chestnut trees, and the Place de l'Etoile and the Place de l'Opera, and its grandiose buildings where the impatient traders brought their strange wares, fur, lace and precious stones. He built theatres and shops, coffee shops and banks. He built beautiful houses so that careless women could continue to blithely smile when the wind blew in from the river, and he built the lofts of the builders and the carpenters of Paris, and he built bars so that the fetching dudes need not cease to drink their ruby beverage on starless nights. Lifting heavy stones, he built the lightest facades of the city, the most beautiful of all cities, Paris. Among the thousands of artisans, there was one named Louis Roux, wearing velvet pants with lime green speckles in a wide flat hat and a clay pipe between his teeth, and like thousands of others, he did honest work, creating the splendor of the Second Empire. He built wonderful houses. During the day, he stood on scaffolding, but at night, he lay in stinking digs on Black Widow Street, on the outskirts of St. Anthony. The dwelling smelled of lime, cheap tobacco, cats and dirty clothes and Black Widow Streets. Like all the streets of the suburb of St. Anthony, smelt like lard cooking, on which traders fried potatoes, herring, and roasted the purple carcass of horse meat. These smells intermingled with those of garbage, cesspools and smoking stoves. But Paris wasn't nicknamed for the most beautiful of all cities because of Black Widow Street, but because of its wide boulevards, fragrant with lilies of the valley, tangerines and perfume treasures from all around the world, and for the grandeur of Place de l'Etoile. Louis Roux built coffee houses and bars. He laid stones for the Regency Coffee House, a favourite of chess players, for the English coffee house where snobs, racists and notable foreigners met, for the Madrid Tavern which hosted 20 different acting companies and for many other respectable premises. But never once did Louis Roux, since the death of his father, enter the already completed coffee houses and he never tried ruby beverages. When he received several small white coins from the contractor, these coins were taken by an old boar on Black Widow Street and in return he gave Louis several large black coins and poured a turbid liquid into a glass. Louis drank the absinthe in one gulp and passed out in his closet. 
When there were no white coins, no dark coins, no absinthe, no bread and no work, Louis stuffed his clay pipe from a pinch of tobacco scrapped from his pocket or from an unlit cigarette he found in the street and walked the streets of the suburb of St. Anthony. He did not sing, nor did he shout bread, as his father, Jean Roux, once did, because he had neither a gun to shoot nor a son opening his mouth like a crow. Louis Roux built houses so that the women of Paris could laugh blithely, but when he heard their laugh, he fearfully avoided them. A woman once laughed from a coffee shop on St. Martin's Boulevard while Jean Roux was lying on the pavement, still trying to walk. Until the age of 25, Louis did not hold a young woman close to him. When he was 25 years old, he moved from one attic of Black Widow Street to another. Something happened to him that sooner or later happens to all people. In the next attic room, there lived a young housemaid, Juliette. Louis met Juliette in the evening on a narrow spiral staircase. He had gone to her to borrow matches as his flint was worn out and unable to start a fire. And once he'd entered her room, he only left in the morning. The next day, Juliette moved two shirts, a cup, a brush into Louis's attic and became his wife. And a year later, a new tenant appeared in the cramped attic, registered at the city hall with the name Paul Maria Rue. So Louis got to know the woman, but unlike many others, of which beautiful Paris is justly proud, Juliette never laughed carelessly. Although Louis Rue loved her strongly as a mason can love, raising heavy stones and building beautiful houses, she probably never laughed because she lived on Black Widow Street, where once the old laundress Marie blithely laughed as she was being taken to the psychiatric hospital. She probably didn't laugh because she only had two shirts, and Louis, who often had neither white nor dark coins, gloomily wandered the streets on the outskirts of St. Anthony, could not even give her one yellow coin for a new dress. In the spring of 1869, when Louis Roux was 28 years old, his son Paul was two years old, Juliette took her two shirts, the cup and the brush, and moved into a butcher's apartment. The butcher sold horse meat on Black Widow Street. She left Paul to her husband because the butcher was a nervous man, and although he loved young women, he didn't like children. Louis held his son so that he would not cry, but rocked him ineptly. He knew how to work with stones but not with children, and went with a pipe in his mouth through the streets of the suburbs of St. Anthony. He was deeply in love with Juliette, but he understood that she had done the right thing. The butcher had lots of yellow coins. He may even move into another street, and with him Juliette would begin to laugh nonchalantly. He remembered that his father, Jean, had left on that June morning with a clean gun and said to his mother, who was crying, I have the right to go, and you have the right to stop me. Roosters want to stay in the chicken coop to keep warm, and ships desire the open sea. For women, they want a quiet life. Remembering the words of his father, Louis was right to want Juliet by his side. At the same time, she was justified in leaving him for the rich butcher. Louis continued to build houses and bring up his son, but the war soon came and the evil Prussians surrounded Paris. No one else wanted to build houses and the plots of unfinished buildings were abandoned. The force of Prussian cannons destroyed many of the beautiful Paris buildings that Louis Roux and other masons had constructed. Louis had no work, no bread, and the three-year-old Paul was already able to silently open his mouth like a little raven. Then Louis was given a gun. Taking it, he did not sing or shout bread, but like many thousands of other stonemasons, carpenters and blacksmiths began to defend Paris, the most beautiful of all cities, from the evil Prussians. Little Paul was sheltered by a kind woman, the owner of a fruit and vegetable stall, Mrs. Mono, 
Louis Rue, together with others barefoot in the cold of winter, congregated at the barricades of the Church of St. Vincent de Paul, aimed the cannons and fired at the evil Prussians. He ate nothing for long days, and there was a famine in Paris. His legs were frozen. The winter of the siege was unpredictably cold. Prussian bombshells fell on the barricades of St. Vincent de Paul, and the number of defenders was getting smaller. But Louis did not leave his position near the small cannon. He defended Paris. And the fairest of cities was worth such a defence. Despite the hunger and cold, the lights of Des Italiennes and Des Chapoutines Boulevards swam. There were enough ruby beverages for the dudes, and the blithe smile did not leave the women's faces. Louis Roux knew that there was no longer an emperor in France, and that now the Republic had been proclaimed in Paris. Rolling cannonballs up the cannon, he had no time to contemplate what it meant to be a Republic. Comrades that came from Paris said that the coffee shops on the boulevards were full of dudes and careless women as before. Louis Roux, listening to their angry muttering, realised that nothing had changed in Paris, that the Republic didn't exist on Black Widow Street, but only on the broad avenues of the Place de l'Etoile, and that even if the stonemason would succeed in driving the Prussians away, little Paul would open his mouth again. Louis Roux knew this, but he did not leave his post at the cannon, and the Prussians did not dare enter the city of Paris. One morning, he was ordered to leave the cannon and return to Black Widow Street. The very same people who had called themselves Republic, and who were probably the dudes or careless women, let the evil Prussians into beautiful Paris. With a pipe in his mouth, the gloomy Louis Roux walked the streets on the outskirts of St. Anthony. The Prussians came and went, but no one built houses. Paul, like a little raven, opened his mouth, and Louis Roux began to clean his gun. Then a formidable order was posted on the walls so that the comrades gave up their guns. Dudes and careless women, calling themselves the Republic, remembered the June days uprising of 48. Louis Roux did not want to give up his gun, and neither did the comrades in the suburbs of St. Anthony, nor those from many other suburbs. They took to the streets with their guns and fired. It was a warm evening as spring had just begun in Paris. The next day, Louis Roux saw elegant carriages, wagons and carts stretching down the streets. On the carts lay all good things, and in the carriages were the people whom Louis used to see in the coffee shops of the Grand Boulevards or in the Bois de Boulogne. There were tiny generals in crimson caps with menacingly drooping moustaches, young women in wide skirts with lace fringes, flabby abbots in their purple robes, old traders with red cylindrical hats on their heads, young officers who had never been to the fort of St. Vincent, or any fort for that matter, self-important and bald servants, dogs with bows on their smoothly combed fur and even noisy parrots. They all hurried to the outpost of Versailles, and when Louis Roux went to the Place de l'Opera in the evening, he saw empty coffee shops, where dudes were no longer drinking ruby beverages, boarded up the stores near to which careless women no longer laughed. People from the quarters of the Champs-Élysées and Place de l'Opera and Saint-Germain got annoyed by the comrades who did not want to relinquish their guns. So they left wonderful Paris with the mirrors over the sidewalks that didn't reflect the lights, which had gone out, all sadly blackened. Louis Roux saw that the Republic had left in carriages, and so he asked his comrades who or what had taken its place. The Paris Commune, they answered. Louis realised that the Paris Commune was situated somewhere near Black Widow Street, but the dudes and the women who had left Paris did not want to forget the fairest of all cities. 
They did not want to give it to the masons, carpenters and blacksmiths, so again the cannonballs began to destroy houses. Yet now they were not sent by the evil Prussians, but by the reputable regulars of the English coffee houses, and Louis realised that he needed to return to his old place at the fort of St. Vincent. But the owner of the vegetable shop, Mrs. Mono, was not only a kind woman, but also a kind Catholic. She refused to let the son of one of the atheists who had killed the Bishop of Paris into her house. Then Louis Roux inserted his clay pipe between his teeth and placed his son Paul on his shoulders and went to the fort of St. Vincent. He rolled the cannonballs to the cannon and Paul played with empty shells. At night the boy slept in the house of the water tower at the fort of St. Vincent. The sentry gave Paul a new clay pipe, exactly the same one that Louis Roux smoked and a bar of soap. Now Paul, when he was bored listening to the shots and looking at the cannon fired from the cannonballs, could blow bubbles. The bubbles were different colours, blue, pink and purple. They looked similar to the balloons which the light-hearted women and the smart young dudes bought and gave to the kids on the Tuileries garden. True, the comrade son's bubbles lasted only for an instant and the lightly tied children balloons survived all day on the Champs-Élysées. But the bubbles were beautiful before they expired in an instant. Paul forgot to open his mouth and wait for a piece of bread. He blew soap bubbles out of the clay pipe instead. Approaching the people whom everyone called communards, amongst whom was Louis Roux, Paul inserted the empty pipe into his mouth, imitating his father, and the people, forgetting for a moment about the gun, spoke kindly to Paul. You're a real communard, but the comrades had only a few guns and only a few cannonballs, and the comrades themselves were only a few and the people who left Paris and now lived in the king's former residence in Versailles were reinforced by new soldiers every day, the sons of poor French peasants and with new guns presented to them by the evil Prussians. They were getting closer and closer to the rampants that surrounded the city of Paris. Many forts were already in their hands and no one replaced the slain gunners, who together with Louis Roux defended the fort of St. Vincent. The bricklayer now pushed the cannonballs himself loaded the cannon and fired, with only two surviving comrades there to help. Merriment reigned in the former residence of the kings of France. The hastily opened coffee houses could not supply the immense demand for ruby beverages. The abbots, in the purple robes, preached magnificent prayers. While stroking their menacingly droopy moustaches, the generals chatted merrily with their arriving Prussian officers and bald servants were already busying over their master's suitcases, preparing for their return to the fairest of all cities. The magnificent park, built on the bones of the 20,000 workers, who had dug the earth day and night, cut down the meadows and dried the swamps so as not to be late for the deadline set by the king, was decorated with flags in honour of victory. During the day, trumpeters blew out their cheeks. Stone mermen of the nine large and forty small fountains shed tears of hypocrisy, and at night, when the lights were extinguished by in weary Paris, there were no swarming reflections on the marble of the squares, but instead triumphant monograms of flapping wings which glittered among the foliage. The army lieutenant, Francois de Mognan, bought a bouquet of delicate lilies for his bride, Gabrielle de Bonivet, proving both the nobility and innocence of his feelings. The lilies were nestled inside a gold handbag decorated with sapphires and bought in Versailles from a jeweller on Mira Street, who'd managed to extricate their jewellery on the first day of the insurrection. The bouquet was also conferred to commemorate the victory. Francois had come to Paris for the day from the front. He told his bride that the insurgents were broken. Tomorrow his soldiers would take the fort of St. Vincent and enter Paris.
So when will the season begin at the opera? asked Gabrielle. After that, they indulged in whispering sweet nothings to one another, quite natural between the hero bridegroom, who had arrived from the front, and the bride, who had embroidered a satin pouch just for him, in a moment of special tenderness, kissing Gabrielle's apricot-coloured lips, Francois said, My dear, you do not know how cruel these communards are. I saw through my binoculars a small boy shooting a cannon near the fort of St. Vincent, and you wouldn't believe it, this tiny pup was already smoking a pipe. But you will kill them all, including the children, Gabrielle chirped, as her breasts were squeezed even more tightly by the hands of the lieutenant on their stroll. Francois knew what he was saying. The next morning, the soldiers of his regiment were ordered to occupy the fort of St. Vincent. Louis Roux and the two surviving comrades aimed their fire at the soldiers. Then Francois gave the order to wave the white flag, and Louis Roux understood that the white flag means peace. He stopped shooting. He thought that the soldiers had their regrets in the fairest of cities and finally wanted to make peace with the Paris Commune. Three comrades smiling and smoking pipes were waiting for the soldiers, and little Paul, who no longer had any soap to blow bubbles, held the pipe in his mouth imitating his father and smiled. And when the soldiers came upon the fort of St. Vincent, Francois de Monian ordered three of them, his best marksmen, to kill the three rebels. He wanted to take the little communard alive to show his bride. The marksmen knew how to shoot, and upon entering the fort of St. Vincent, the soldiers found the three people with pipes lying near the cannon. The soldiers had already encountered many dead people and were therefore not surprised. But seeing the small boy with a pipe sitting on the cannon, they became confused and recalled the crucifixion of the holy Jesus and a thousand devils. "'Where did you come from, you nasty little flea?' asked one of the soldiers. "'I'm a real communard,' said Paul Roux, smiling." The soldiers wanted to pierce him with their bayonets, but the corporal said that Lieutenant Francois de Mignan had ordered the little communard to be taken to one of the eleven checkpoints, where they took all the prisoners. "'How many of ours has he killed, this little angel?' grumbled one of the soldiers, prodding him with the butts of their weapon, and little Paul, who'd never killed a soldier, just blew soap bubbles out of his pipe and couldn't understand why people chided him and were being otherwise offensive towards him. Prisoner insurgent Paul Roux, who was four years old, was led by the soldiers of the National Army into conquered Paris. Even while shot comrades still lay dying in the northern suburbs, people were already having fun in the quarters of the Champs-Élysées Opera and the new quarter of the Place de l'Étoile. It was the most wonderful month, May, when the chestnut trees bloomed in the broad boulevards and beneath them, around the marble tables of the coffee shops, young dudes drank ruby liqueurs and the women smiled nonchalantly. As the tiny communade was carried through the streets by the soldiers, there were cries for him to be done away with, but the corporal remembered the lieutenant's order and the boy was protected. But the soldiers were bequeathed other prisoners, both women and men. These insurgents were spat on and beaten with graceful punches, and when they grew weary, young dudes or careless women would slaughter them with a bayonet borrowed from a passing soldier. Paul Roux was led to the Luxembourg Gardens. There, in front of the palace, a large area had been fenced off where the captured communards had been hauled to. Paul walked self-importantly between them with his pipe and wanting to comfort some of the women who were weeping bitterly said, "'I can blow bubbles. My father, Louis Roux, smoked a pipe and fired a gun. I'm a real communist.' But the women who had left their children, who'd maybe also like to blow bubbles, somewhere in the outskirts of St Anthony, cried more bitterly. Then Paul sat on the grass and began to think about the bubbles. How beautiful they were, blue and pink and purple, 
and since he hadn't been aware of just how long a walk the journey was from the fort of St. Vincent to the Luxembourg Garden, he soon fell asleep, not letting go of his pipe. While he was sleeping, two horses pulled a light carriage along the Versailles Highway. Francois de Mignon was taking his bride, Gabrielle de Bonnivet, to beautiful Paris, and Gabrielle de Bonnivet had never looked as beautiful as she did on this day. Her delicate oval face resembled the portraits of the old Florentine masters. She was wearing a lemon-coloured dress with lace woven at the Lou Soleil Abbey. A tiny umbrella protected her matte skin, the colour of apple blossom, from the direct rays of the May sun. She was truly the most beautiful woman in Paris, and, knowing this, she smiled nonchalantly. Having entered the city, Francois de Monian called upon a soldier from his regiment and asked him where the little prisoner of St. Vincent had been placed. When the lovers entered the Luxembourg garden and saw the old chestnut trees in bloom, ivy over the Medici fountain and blackbirds jumping along the paths, Gabrielle's heart overflowed with tenderness, and clutching the hand of her groom, she mumbled, "'My dear, how wonderful life is!' The prisoners, from whom every hour someone was taken away to be shot, reacted to the sounds of the lieutenant's boots with horror. Everyone thought that their turn had come, but Francois did not pay any attention to them. He was looking for a small communard. Finding him asleep, he woke him up with a gentle kick. The boy, waking up, first burst into tears, but then seeing Gabrielle's cheerful face, so unlike the sad faces of the other women he'd been surrounded by, inserted his pipe into his mouth, smiled, and said, "'I'm a real communard.' Gabrielle, with great satisfaction, said, "'Indeed, so small. "'I think that they are the natural-born killers. "'It is necessary to exterminate them all, "'even those that have just been born.' Now you've seen him, we can finish him off, said Francois, calling to a soldier. But Gabrielle asked him to wait a bit. She wanted to prolong the delight of this amiable and carefree day. She recalled that once, walking through a fair in the Bois de Boulogne, she had seen clay pipes hanging from a stall, spinning rapidly. Young people were firing guns at the clay pipes. Although Gabrielle de Bonnivet was from a fine noble family, she loved common entertainment and, recalling the fair, asked the groom, I want to learn how to shoot. The wife of a military officer from the National Army should be able to hold a gun in her hands. Let me try and shoot the pipe of this little killer. Francois de Monian never refused anything to his bride. He'd recently given her a pearl necklace, which cost 30,000 francs. Could he refuse her some inculpable entertainment? He took a gun from the soldier and handed it to the bride. Seeing the woman with the gun, the prisoners bolted and huddled in the far corner of the fenced-off area. Only Paul stood calmly, with his pipe and smiled. Gabrielle wanted to fire at the pipe, and aiming, she said to the boy, "'Run away! I'm going to shoot!' But Paul had often seen people firing rifles, and he continued to stand still. Impatiently, Gabrielle fired, and since this was her first time shooting, her error was completely forgivable. "'My dear,' said Francois de Monian, "'you are much better at piercing hearts with arrows than clay pipes with bullets. "'Look, you killed this little bastard, and his pipe remained intact.' Gabrielle de Bonnevet said nothing. Looking at the small red spot, she breathed more quickly, and pressing herself closer to Francois, requested to return home, feeling the need for a languid caress of her groom. Paul Roux, who lived on this earth for four years, and more than anything else in the world loved to blow soap bubbles out of a clay pipe, lay motionless. I recently met the old communard Pierre Lautrec in Brussels. 
I became friends with him, and the lonely old man gave me the only thing he owned, a clay pipe from which the little poor Rue blew bubbles fifty years previously. On May Day, when the four-year-old insurgent was killed by Gabriel de Bonnivet, Pierre Lautrec was also in the pen in Luxembourg Garden. Almost all the prisoners of Versailles were shot there. Pierre Lautrec survived because some young dudes realised that beautiful Paris, which aspired to be even more beautiful, would need masons, carpenters and blacksmiths. Pierre Lautrec was exiled for five years. He'd fled from Cayenne to Belgium and carried the pipe picked up from the corpse of Paul Rue through all his ordeals. He gave it to me and told me everything I've written. I often put it to my lips when I'm in rage, and there's still a trace of the breath of the gentle and still innocent child, maybe even a trace of the popping soap bubbles. But this toy of little Paul Rue, killed by the most beautiful woman, Gabriella de Bonnivet, in the most beautiful city of Paris, represents for me a great hatred. Clinging to the pipe, I beseech one thing. When you see a white flag, do not lower your gun as poor Louis Rue did, and for goodness sake, do not relinquish the fort of St. Vincent, where there are three comrades and an infant blowing bubbles. Cool.